Welcome to the fifth episode of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. In this edition, I welcome Heather West. Heather has followed and reported on the M&A world for some 20 years for different institutions, including Bloomberg, the Financial Times Group, and Merger Market. And she did that in New York, Hong Kong, and San Francisco. And she's currently Senior Managing Editor, Private Equity and M&A at PitchBook. Heather, welcome to the podcast. What attracts you to M&A? Thank you, Hoos. Oh, good question. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for letting me take part in your new podcast series. Very exciting. I fell into M&A when I took a job at Merger Market, which was a British media startup that focused on identifying M&A opportunities. And in that role, I interviewed more than a thousand CEOs across sectors, including energy. And each executive had a different story to tell. And covering M&A as a reporter and an editor also gave me the opportunity to manage teams around the world, similar to your path. And as you recall, I once interviewed you when you were head of M&A at Shell, and I'm excited to do it again. So let's get started. Can I ask you, who's, what do you like about deal making? I love the fact that every deal is different and that you can learn from everyone to get better the next time. It's also very measurable. You either have a deal or you don't. There's nowhere to hide. That is true. And how did you get into it? Well, I joined Shell in the chemicals business because I had studied chemistry. But while I was studying, I became more interested in the commercial side of things. So I got a marketing role in Shell Chemicals, and then I developed into management. But I liked increasing the commercial challenges and complexity. So I went from selling one product in one transaction to multiple transactions, and then a job where you had to negotiate long-term contracts, where the negotiation planning and relationship building comes in. And then I got involved in my first M&A deals as a business manager. And I realized that in M&A, there are even more degrees of commercial freedom, which then defined the second half of my shell career. I first had individual deals. And in my last nine years, I was in charge of the entire downstream and renewables deal-making team, where we must have done some hundred deals in countries all across the world. That's incredible, 100 deals. And that would imply you probably looked at a lot more than that in the process. So thank you for sharing that. So in my time following M&A, I used to come across a statistic that said most acquisitions fail. But funny enough, I never heard a professional dealmaker offer this up. But you seem brave enough to venture out and be critical of M&A. Uh, why is that? Yeah, Heather, I'm critical because I think our industry still has the capacity to destroy a lot of value. It seems to me there's more focus on announcing the deal and explaining how it fits with the company's strategy and all of that rather than on hard financial numbers. And from experience, I know it's actually very hard to get it right. I found this out when I started measuring the success of my own deals. Sometimes even the deals where you think you did well don't look that great when one or two years post-acquisition you put them under a microscope. In the corporate world, what incentives are there for companies to communicate their shortcomings? And all companies, after all, want to do is to communicate their great plans going forward, not their failings in the past. And investors seem to have an idea that something is wrong, because it's normal that the market price of the acquired companies goes up when an offer is made, but it's quite rare that the value of the acquirer goes up by an amount that would be in line with the value that the company expects to create through the acquisition. And the same actually happens when a company announces a large organic investment. Shareholders don't value that immediately, but that's maybe more understandable. 
as these large investments take years before they complete and revenues will start to flow. But you could argue that investors should be more keen on acquisitions as the additional revenues start from day one. But still, shareholders often have cold feet and I can understand why. That does seem to be the pattern. And I would agree the focus is always on the announcement and explaining how the deal fits with the strategy rather than that long-term perspective. So is anybody getting this right? Well, one of the best examples I think of growing successfully through acquisitions is Ineos, now a global top 10 chemical company. But it's only some 25 years ago that Jim Radcliffe, who's still the CEO today, made his first deal. Of course, Ineos is not a public company, but with his acquisition record, I would expect shareholders to be excited every time he does a deal. Although maybe the exception is the possible Manchester United takeover that he's now contemplating, which is reported to require a valuation of more than $5 billion for the successful bidder. That's premised on the value of sports businesses continuing to increase, like it's done in the past. But even here, there's also an interesting possibility of synergies because he's already bought or made investments in sailing, Formula One, cycling, and in football itself with the Nice Football Club in France. In general, it seems that private equity gets his right more often than public companies. And in fact, they've turned buying and selling well, with a strong turnaround management in between, into a very successful business model. That's an interesting example about Jim Ratcliffe and synergies between Manchester United and his other sports investments. We cover our private equity in sports at Pitchbook and the following the recent PGA deal with the Saudi Public Investment Fund. So sports seem to be having a moment. I agree with you, Heather, and I'm following it with interest. Shifting topics slightly, Hoos, can you share your views on diversity and deal making? Is it still very much a male-dominated world, or have you seen any changes over the years? Yeah, Heather, I think it changed quite a bit. But I think there could still be more women in deal-making. Maybe can you join in in a short quiz? Uh, with all your experience in interviewing top CEOs and deal-makers, which of the following traits in deal-making would you think are particularly important for success? I've got six. Okay, I'll, get my, I'll jot this down. <laughs> Reasoning, listening, creativity, improvisation, competitiveness, and sociability. Okay, I would say sociability, because top bankers are excellent relationship builders. Second, I would say creativity, define opportunities for growth and structure deals. And for the third, maybe competitiveness or listening. Well, we don't disagree much. Whenever I reflect on it, softer skills such as listening, creativity, and sociability are possibly underestimated in their importance for deal-making. And a degree of competitiveness is useful, as often a negotiation is a bit of a fight, and you also need stamina to get to the end. But I wouldn't trade it for listening, because listening is even more important. Uh, we're in the people business, and we need to build trust with people, understand people, and influence them. Only once you're successful with that, you can get to an agreement. And it may be necessary to be determined and strong-willed about it at times where the competitiveness comes in. But far more important is how good are you at getting the person across the table to share with you what their real drivers are. And the skill to do that, whichever culture you're operating in, is going to be important. So that's why I end up choosing listening, creativity and sociability. 
Whenever I discuss this with women, I see smiles of understanding. And the M&A world has a bit of a macho reputation with working extreme hours, frantic negotiation and high corporate visibility. But I would say it also offers flexible hours for those who are interested in that. And a very diverse set of challenges every day. And women should be super interested to work in the area. I've also found that those women who did become deal makers all enjoyed what they were doing. That's so interesting. You make an interesting point about the importance of those softer skills in M&A. Most dealmakers are quite sociable and persuasive salespeople at the bottom of it, I think. But I had not thought about those listening skills as well. That is an important feature, and you are a great listener, so I see why you are successful. Uh, hopefully, it's not only the women who are, are strong listeners. I did want to ask you, you mentioned flexible hours. In what way does this industry offer flexible working hours? Because that's one I don't hear very often. Well, in M&A, very often you work in small teams and a lot of the time is going to be arranged in between your team or with your counterpart. But you don't have to be part of the corporate treadmill of preordained meetings that much. And that's where the flexibility is because you and your teammates decide when what gets done. Okay, well, I love to hear more about how you personally handled the stress and intensity of dealmaking. What was your approach? Yeah, in deal-making, you really have to be at your best to perform. Imagine going to a negotiation, not being well-prepared or not feeling well physically or not being able to cope with negotiations that stretch over days and days. Therefore, going back to the sports analogy, I like comparing deal athletes with sports athletes. The value at stake, if you think about it, in doing deals is often higher than the value associated in sports even with some of the most expensive games, be it an NBA playoff, a Champions League football game, or even a Wimbledon final. And there's millions at stake, but probably not billions as may happen in a deal. And everybody knows what the sport athletes do in training to get ready for their game. It's not just the technical aspect of the sport, but nutrition, sleep, psychological support are all part of the modern support package. So why don't we do that with the deal-making athletes? I tried to change that and worked with a group called the Resilience Institute to bring these concepts to the Shell dealmaking teams. And over the years, I may actually have been the one benefiting the most, as every time you can learn something new about how it is that you can optimize your own performance and add it to your habits and routines. In my view, it's one of the best ways of avoiding stress with employees, and even while working in potentially stress-inducing conditions like in m and I did not realize... Shell or other companies provided executives with physical and psychological support, but that makes sense given the long hours and high stress. Kudos to you for supporting your teams that way. So I wanted to summarize what we've covered so far. The first being that value destruction in M&A due to pursuing the wrong deals or executing deals poorly is still a problem in this industry. You mentioned one major reason is the focus on the short term or the splashy news value rather than considering the benefits two years down the line. Second, you argue that women should be more strongly represented in M&A. I think you implied that women in the industry couldn't bring important soft skills to negotiation tables. But I would also add that women see opportunities that men may not see or appreciate in markets that are more targeted to women. So it's also a business opportunity. And third, Dealmakers should not be trained to be better dealmakers in terms of dealmaking skills, but they should also learn how to be more resilient physically and psychologically in order to do better deals. So it's also a, a stamina test. That's great. So I think we're going to take a short break for our sponsor, Pilco. 
Pilko and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Welcome back to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. I am Heather West, and I am interviewing your podcast host today, Hus Kreva. So Hus, we have spoken about the people involved in M&A, but for the listeners putting their own deals together, could you share more about what you have learned about the deal-making process? What are the signs that a transaction is going well? Let me answer that, Heather, by talking about the three whys and the three hows in a deal. I think these are the questions you must be able to answer if you want your deal to be successful. They don't all have to be answered at the same time. You'll build that up as the project progresses. But at the time of the investment decision, you need to have them all. So the whys are the following. First one, why do we want to buy the company in this business or industry? Second one, why this target? This particular company, asset or business. And the third one is why now? Why today? If you work in a deal team, you would expect that the strategy colleagues have done a fair bit on the first why. Why do we want to buy in this business? They should have articulated the strategic rationale for entering in the business or the country, and there should also be a basic level of information about the business. But don't be surprised if you find in your first meeting to discuss the deal that this needs a lot more work. This is one of the reasons why close collaboration between strategy departments and deal-making teams is critical. On the second why, why this target or this particular business, I would always expect the team to be able to say that we've spoken or looked at multiple assets or companies that could be acquired to meet the strategic objective and not just one. You want to know that you're going to be buying the most suitable one and not just the one that happened to be for sale today. And that brings us to the why now question. I would look for a perspective on how valuations for business in this industry have moved over time and might move in the future, and whether there's anything specific on the valuation on the company itself. In our last podcast, Javed Ahmed reminded us about the importance of commodity, business, and investment cycles. Many successful acquirers have been eyeing up their targets over a long period of time and triggered the deal when they thought the timing was right. If the answer on the why now question is because we're running the project right now, then the synergies need to be pretty high because we may not be minimizing the acquisition cost. I love your point about why now. In addition to understanding why a target makes strategic sense, I always press reporters to understand the trigger for a deal because that's where you get the real story. That's the part that's not in the press release, right? Sometimes there's competitive or financial urgency or a business owner is ready to retire or, as you point out, other factors like commodity prices might drive the timing. So now that we understand why one might do a deal, can you break down how you do it? Yes, we can. The how questions are, how will you negotiate this deal? How will you structure the deal? And how will you deliver the value? 
If it seems obvious, I'll still share a bit of the thinking behind it. On the negotiation question, I'm really looking at what's going on in the mind of the seller and how we're going to play our game such that we firstly create a position where the seller actually wants to sell to us. And secondly, how we achieve a price that's as close as possible to the MESP of the seller. And the MESP is the minimum acceptable sales price for us, for the seller. And preferably don't want to pay more. The negotiation starts earlier than everybody thinks. It starts at the very moment there's any discussion with the seller, whichever the form of the discussion may be. You may not even be discussing the transaction and you might already influence the negotiation by saying things about your own motivation. And any mistake in these first conversations may be impossible to correct later. The negotiation is not only with the seller, but you need to consider all the stakeholders in the deal and you usually should be thinking about that when you prepare the deal. So now we'll go to structure. And with structure, I'm thinking not only of legal and corporate structure. Will it be an asset or a share deal? Which legal entities are going to be involved? And even which liabilities are we going to pick up when we do this acquisition? But I'm also thinking of the management structure we'd like to have in place after the acquisition. So how are we going to run this thing? How will you integrate the company? And if it's going to be a joint venture, there are, of course, lots of good and bad experience of running a joint venture. So how are you going to take on board these learnings in your anticipated joint venture? And the word value comes at last, but actually it will be driving all that we're doing. If we cannot articulate how we'll generate value, we should not do a deal. But where many fail is in the relentless follow-up on value delivery with good implementation and integration planning and then a very strong execution of your integration plans. I hope this helps everybody working on growth projects and don't be satisfied with half-baked answers to any of these questions, because if you don't have them clear, it will trip you up later. Good advice. I agree that negotiations start earlier than one would expect. First impressions are so crucial. I think you also mentioned this in one of your previous podcasts, your guest from Bank of America talked about being careful about what you say from the very start, because it can all be used against you. And so when you handle your first encounters with deal partners around the world, who's, did you find any of this challenging? I know you enjoyed the work, but what were some of the challenges? Yeah, actually, one of the things I enjoyed the most was the multinational aspect of Shell and the fact that we could do deals in many different countries. And it was also a benefit because we didn't only operate in many countries, but we therefore employed people from all these countries and Shell does a great job at mixing them. So you don't even have to move out of the head office to find somebody who understands the particular country where your next deal may play out. I would always try to increase my cultural awareness before getting involved locally. And two things are really important. How will you adjust your behavior to fit with the norms and expectations of the people you're going to deal with? And secondly, how can you read correctly what's happening in your deal by filtering out the customs that are local and therefore should not really influence your objective view of what's going on in the deal. So what would that look like in practice? Well, on the first conditioning your behavior worked for me by speaking to those Shell colleagues who had experience in the country and by reading. And you think that's relevant internationally, but even within, let's say, the US uh, for a potential deal with a company owned by the billionaire Koch brothers, it was great to find that they'd written a book about their management philosophy. And dealing with Gerald Ronson in the UK, 
who's one of the institutions in the energy business here, it was great that I could read his autobiography. And for example, for a deal in the Middle East, there are plenty of folks who've written about how the oil industry developed there. So there's always something you can find. And then for the second thing, being able to listen with a local ear, I would try to have a local person or someone who really knows the country be part of my negotiation team. I cannot count how often, even when your counterparty is fully fluent in English, they would still take advantage during the meeting or during the break and chat with our local team member to check what they had intended to communicate had fully landed. And of course, we would do the same. And don't overdo it, as of course, your company may have plenty of international experience. I can actually remember one occasion in Japan where, of course, everything's done very gently and with respect for each other. My counterparty burst out. Now, Geve-san, can you please try to be more Dutch and direct and explain to us what it is that you would like to achieve? That's funny. The Japanese put you in your place. Geve-san. I would like to come back to the first item we discussed where you were critical of the value destruction in the M&A industry. Maybe we can move on to what practical tips you have to avoid that. How did you avoid value destruction in your work? In the second episode of the podcast series, we had Jeff Rudnicki from McKinsey. And McKinsey had done research on success factors in M&A. And he explained that the strategy of serial acquisitions is winning versus irregular acquisitions or no acquisitions at all. And I'm convinced that the reason behind that is doing deals regularly makes you better at doing them just because you learn from one deal to the next. And therefore, if you can accelerate your corporate learning you can get that success even faster. So it might be easy to say, okay, I'll build a learning culture. But in practice, that's a bit more difficult. How do you get people to acknowledge faults and mistakes if the whole corporate culture, and especially the one in dealmaking, is based on celebrating success? How is success actually defined in dealmaking? We already spoke about that. Typically, this is marked by the signing of a deal, which gets all these newspaper headlines. But of course, more accurate is the deal completed. The ownership actually has changed hands. Or maybe success could be that you walked away from a deal that was not going to deliver value, even if you worked at it for years or more. But once you sign, that's only the start of the integration progress. And that's a lot of hard work. And how many reports do we get of the delivered synergies against estimates at the time of deal announcement? But that's actually what clearly should be the yardstick of success. Has the value that was promised when the deal was signed been delivered? And how many times do we actually hear about that? And in how many cases is remuneration tied to the value being delivered? I think probably only private equity gets this right. While for corporate HR departments, what I found that's just one in the box of too complicated. But what's difficult for me to understand that even investment banks are paid all of their success fee when the deal is completed. And that's completely independent of whether the value gets delivered. I agree that pay structure is really influential. So what would you like to see done differently? Well, I'd like companies that do regular acquisitions to report to their boards and ideally to shareholders on the value that they expect from the deals that they sign, as well as they should update us on the value they realize from the deal they've done. You may have to provide cumulative details so you don't share too much detail but why would we not see an acquisition value delivery ratio, which would be the value delivered divided by the value premised at the time of signing? 
And logically, that should be at 100%. You delivered just as much value as you promised, or even a bit more. And if dealmakers would know that this is what the ultimate aim is, then we'll have less deal fever and more cool calculation. We'll have way more implementation planning and probably a smoother handover between implementation planning and implementation execution. And dealmakers would be very keen to learn from other deals what they can improve to get better value delivery ratios, as that will determine their reward. And the smart companies make sure that with each deal review, which you have to do to measure the value delivery ratio, the learnings will get recorded and shared widely within the company. And then the last thing is that the behavior of the leaders will be crucial. Because when they come across the mistakes, they should actually celebrate the learnings and resist the urge to criticize the performer. Once people see that it is safe to share their learnings, more of them will come forward and you achieve a positive learning spiral with rapid performance improvement. So it sounds like what you're saying is that those success fees are really driving this disconnect. And I have to say a value delivery ratio is not quite as exciting, but you make a great point about having the mind to make cool calculations. So I want to summarize your advice to dealmakers so far. You've noted that linking valuation, due diligence, and implementation planning and execution to the heart of a successful deal. You've also mentioned that Cultural awareness is one of the most important elements in a dealmaker's toolbox, especially when doing international deals. And finally, learning from deal to deal is the key to corporate M&A success. But building a learning culture is not easy, especially in this environment. Well, Heather, thank you. That's a great summary. And thank you for turning the tables in this episode and playing my role of the interviewer. Thank you for having me. It was fun. So this is the end of this episode of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. Please visit pilco.com for more information or to leave your feedback and ask questions. Thank you for listening.